0: did on that first Palm Sunday, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Hear the word of God. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. And uh, you indeed are worthy of all praise and honor and blessing. As uh, weak and as feeble as our praises uh, may have been, we pray that uh, through the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the empowering of your Holy Spirit, that they have been pleasing in your sight. And it is our desire, Father, to grow in our understanding of how to be Praising people i pray that you would minister in our midst and that you would uh, be blessed as we seek to respond to your word with our thoughts our attitudes and uh, uh with our words and we pray these things in the strong name of jesus christ amen you may be seated <clears throat> in today's uh, sermon i'd like to look at four reasons uh, why we ought to be praising god even in the most difficult and painful of circumstances sometimes praise arises simply out of faith we sure don't feel like it but as we praise its reciprocal and that praise engenders more faith and uh, some people just have a hard time with that they have a hard time uh, praising God when they don't feel like it I remember the first time that I uh, praised God when I felt like complaining and I felt very strongly like complaining but I did it because I knew I was commanded to praise and I believed in the promises of God by faith And yet it felt rather strange to be doing so. It felt very out of place, it felt odd, but it did wonders within me because as I started praising God, I felt a transformation happening within my spirit. And I tell you, there is nothing quite like praise to uh, encourage and to stir up more faith within us. There's nothing quite like praise to take bitterness out of our hearts. There's nothing quite like spending a season of time in praise to uh, reduce that anger that maybe has been starting to climb within us. Uh, praise is a, a powerful a powerful tool, and it is not dependent on how we feel. It is not dependent on our circumstances. It is simply dependent upon the promises of God. And uh, <clears throat> from that time on, I began to notice all kinds of times in the Scripture where Praise seems somewhat out of place. Uh, You can think of Job who had lost his family and he had lost everything. And what did he do? It says, yes, he was mourning because he put on sackcloth and ashes, but he fell down and he worshiped God and he praised God. And people who look at that just think that's a little bit odd. It was really not until quite some time later as he's had time to stew over matters and as he's had time to... Uh, hear the negative affirmations of his counselors that more and more uh, 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 bitterness creeps into his heart and faith is diminished more and more, and you find him complaining uh, more and more. You can think of examples like Paul and Silas who are singing praises to God in the jail after they have had a beating of their life and their back is bleeding from all of the beatings that they've received, and yet they're joyous in God's. Um, uh, mercies in their life and the privilege, even of being persecuted for his sake. It's a totally different perspective uh, that they had. You can think of Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat has this enormous army that's coming against him, and here he's going out with his tiny little band singing praises to God for the Lord's victories. And it seems like the strangest thing. Why in the world would he be praising the Lord? And yet, by faith, they praised, and that faith engendered even a greater faith that accomplished. A victory against god's enemies in fact they didn't even have to raise their hand god uh, provided a miracle on their behalf and so i want to look at this concept of praise and why christ said that praise was so important in the lives of his followers on this uh, palm sunday and i think you'd have to admit from a human perspective john chapter 12 it seems a little bit out of place it's a very tense situation in the previous chapter verse 7 When uh, Jesus says, let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? When he says yes, they kind of look at each other and they say, let us go also that we may die with him. I mean, that's the attitude that they have, right? They they, they can see that there's a lot of tension that's around them. Verse 7 talks about Christ being anointed for his burial. The Pharisees not only conspired to kill Jesus, but in verse 10, they conspired to kill Lazarus as well. Uh, He talks about his death in verses 23 through 26. He prays about his death in the next verses. Verses 37 and following show the incredible hardness of heart and the unbelief that was all around them. There's a lot to be discouraged about, and yet in verses 12 through 9, it indicates that Palm Sunday is preeminently a day of praise and thanksgiving and singing to the Lord. In fact, when the Pharisees try to uh, hinder uh, them from singing, he says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So I want to look at what is there about this day that would necessitate such praise? And I believe that there are four things. And John's first reason for rejoicing is eschatology. It's the doctrine of the future. See, Jesus is not just king of the past and king of the present, he is king of the future. That's what eschatology is all about. He determines the future. And um, this whole passage gives hints of Christ's promise that he would build his church so invincibly and so irresistibly that even the gates of hell would not be able to prevail. Against the missions movement part of the resistance in fact part of the difficulties came because Satan is running scared He is doing his utmost to stop what looks to him to be irresistible Let me give you a a quick listing of some of the hints of that worldwide triumph of the gospel in this chapter first of all verse 12 most of the crowd that had come on this Jewish festival Was from around the world Josephus estimates that at these festivals there was uh, many as five million visitors From around the world He says every nation had these Jews who were coming to this festival And so this would have been an awesome incredible experience as people from every nation are singing praises of the king of Israel I mean, I'd be getting excited over what was happening uh, on that day Uh, That was just a tiny foretaste of God's purposes for his kingdom Psalm 72 promises every nation will be reached. Uh, Revelation tells us multitudes which no man can number are going to be singing his praises uh, from every nation, from every people group, from every tongue. A second testimony of God's worldwide blessing can be seen in verse 15. Now Jesus knows why he's sitting on that donkey, but John has to explain it to us. And he does so by quoting Zechariah 9 uh, verses 9 through 10. Which predicts that uh, even though Israel is going to be punished, the gospel is going to go forward in Israel and it's going to go forward to the ends of the earth. Now, let me read to you the whole Old Testament passage. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. As speaking about uh, God's war against Jerusalem. Uh, and then he says, The battle bow shall be cut off, but he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so, this king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey is a king who brings judgment on Israel and who is going to be bringing missions to the ends of the earth. Now, it may not have looked as if Christ was going to triumph, it seemed like it was the exact opposite. But Christ says praise is essential. Why? Because he's looking at life from the perspective of faith in God's promises. A third proof is that verse 19 shows that Satan is fearful of Christ. He is scared to death of what Christ is doing. He says in verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Despite all of their strategies of neutralizing what Christ was doing, they have been unsuccessful. Now, John does not include that statement by accident. This whole chapter, he is crafting together by selecting different events and framing them in a way to encourage the people that are reading this, this chapter. The whole world is go- gone after him. It's a foretaste of things to come. Now, for the disciples, they're scared of the Pharisees. They think these Pharisees are unstoppable, but the Pharisees are scared of Christ. (laughs) They think that um, He is unstoppable. I have an audio tape from uh, my Seminary days when I was going to seminary I had a friend who took a membership in the American Humanist Association and he did that so he could be a spy and just Find out what kinds of things these guys were doing. Well, he brought me this tape of what had happened the week before And this tape was outlining the strategy for neutralizing Christianity. If you want a copy of it and you want to listen to it, I've got uh, a copy. But uh, how how are we going to neutralize Christianity? And in the 18 years since I've gotten that tape, I think they've been fairly successful in carrying out a lot of their plans. But what I found so humorous in that tape is these guys were scared to death of a tiny group called Reconstructionists. Uh, they were not scared at all and and we're we're that tiny group, right? And there's other groups across they weren't scared at all of the moral majority because they uh, Felt and predicted that uh, the moral majority eventually would peter out They weren't uh, afraid at all of broad evangelicalism because they said that evangelicalism has compromised its basic principles so much that they're really not a threat in fact they have such a pessimistic view of the future That It almost neutralizes their effectiveness in any kind of a long-lasting endeavor. They recognize this these humanists but they said we need to be scared to death of these reconstructionists and uh, They said we need to do everything we can in the media in the courts and in every forum where we have been successful in gaining uh, People who are positioned there. We need to do everything we can to destroy and to vilify the reconstructionists And they gave four reasons why we Reconstructionists were dangerous and why we might take over America. They said, first of all, American history is on their side because they can constantly appeal to what was going on in early America. Secondly, these Reconstructionists are not embarrassed by anything in the scripture. They take the whole scripture, including the law. And if you pick up the the worst passages in the Bible, they, they praise the Lord for it. They're not embarrassed at all by it. And they said, thirdly, they've got an eschatology that just drives them because they believe they're going to win. And then the fourth thing is these guys are actually trying to apply the scriptures in every area of life. And uh, so I found it so ironic. Here are these humanists who are scared to death of us, and the Christians are scared to death of them. And I I just think of the spies who went into the land of Canaan. Uh, They went to Rahab, the harlot's place. And what does Rahab say? She says that the Canaanites know that there's no way they can win against Israel. And so they go back and they report these spies and what does Israel think? There's no way we can win against the Canaanites, right? And it took a later generation that had faith in the promises of God to accomplish great things. And so in this passage here, we've we've got an indication Satan knows he's in trouble. He's in trouble, amen? And uh, we ought to have a faith. That uh, that Christ does that it doesn't matter how grim things might look the victory belongs to his people Nor is it accidental that in the very next verse John gives a little tidbit of information that might otherwise have been lost verses 20 through 22 Give a fourth proof of this worldwide intention of the cross. Let's read that It says now there were certain Greeks Now, that's very interesting because the Jews did not look real favorably upon Gentiles. But it says here, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So in a very literal sense, the world uh, coming after Jesus that the Pharisees talked about has already begun to happen. And what began back then has continued nonstop in such an encouraging way. I mean, secularists are really upset in Africa that Christianity is taking over Africa. Uh, You look at the statistics in Africa, this is such an encouraging thing. You look at China and you see the the, the same thing, and that's one of the reasons I actually picked this passage is because of the missions trip I'm going to be taking on May the 2nd. But uh, one um, article that I was reading uh, this past week said this according to the statistics provided by the chinese christian council the protestant christian population in china is now over 40 million in 1997 the total number of christians was around 13 million in eight years it's gone from 13 to 40 million it's just been a wildfire it's been incredible the growth of christianity In that nation and so there is great reason from Christ's perspective for people to be saying Hosanna you know hallelujah and to be thanking Father Son and Holy Spirit for what he is accomplishing in this earth there's sadness that we have today in persecution just like they had sadness and persecution back then but through the eyes of faith we see the victory John continues to draw out this theme in the remaining verses he speaks of Christ's glory In verses 23 through 33 verse 23 but jesus answered them saying the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified so the hour of christ's glorification is not postponed no uh there's no separation between the time of his sufferings and the time of his glorification it's precisely his sufferings that usher in the glories that's why peter says uh, he talks about the the sufferings of christ and the glories that follow And so this is the time in which Christ is more and more being exalted and glorified in the world. In verse 24, Christ gives a sixth reason that in the face of death, there's much to praise God. And that is that much grain will be harvested. It's through dying that he brings in the great harvest. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And much grain is exactly what Christ was promising. Verse 32 says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And so the eschatology of chapter 12 was designed to instill faith and encouragement in the lives of people who are reading this chapter. In verse 28, Even the father uh, utters with a thunderous voice these words: "I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again." Eighth, Satan's total defeat is prophesied in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Okay, I think we need to get into into our heads that Christ's triumph is ordained to be snatched out of the jaws of defeat. I mean, it's in the times of suffering that God's, uh, a weak, uh, God's strength is made perfect. It's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. And so the cross of Jesus Christ is everything that we need to defeat Satan. We don't need a second coming. We don't need anything else. The cross is designed to defeat Satan. It's designed to capture the nations from Satan's clutches. It is guaranteed uh, the salvation of this world. says in revelation 12 that god's people resist the dragon it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony now there's one more hint that he rules the future and uh it's one more hint of eschatology and that's in verse 32 I, i guess i already read it ahead of time and i if i am lifted up from the earth will draw all peoples to myself so here's the important thing we need to keep in our mind when jesus rode into jerusalem on that donkey It was not an empty gesture. It was not just a theoretical kingship. No, he was entering in declaring himself to be the king who was going to take the conquest of the world. This was the joy that was set before him that enabled Jesus to endure the cross. And it's the joy that is set before us that enables us to endure the persecution and the slander and the pain and the suffering that we face. Because nobody wants to be involved in a war that you know, you're not allowed to win. You know, a Vietnam type of a war I mean people were so discouraged. That's a frustrating thing to be involved in that But there are many people who have gladly laid down their lives in a good cause that they know will triumph And that's exactly what God says is the cause. What's a good fight? He says fight the good fight I don't know of any good fight that I didn't win. (laughs) It was a bad fight if I lost Fight the good fight. He wants us and he wants the church to win. And uh, we want to know that our sufferings are not going to be in vain and our deaths will not be in vain. First Corinthians 15 says this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I mean, what could be a better cause to suffer for than the great commission? What could be a greater cause to die for then the winning of the nations for king jesus That's a, just an incredible vision of the future that we can rejoice in now a second anchor for our faith That enables us to praise god in even the most difficult of circumstances is the doctrine Of god's total predestination of all things Okay, this is his providential control of all of history It gives meaning to history. Now, one of the things you'll find in the Gospels is the repeated use of the word must, need, or needed, and necessary. And they're all translations of the Greek word day, D-E-I. And theologians speak of the divine day, which is God's destiny, which controlled every aspect of Jesus' life. Let me give you just a few examples. It says he needed to go through Samaria, John 4, verse 4. Uh, Luke 13:33. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Mark 8:31 says he began to teach them that the Son of God must. There is that word again: suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, one of the things you're going to see is when you read through the Passion Week is the incredible detail regarding timing regarding timing verse one of chapter 12 here speaks of six days before passover there's a reason why he outlines it six days before passover the passage talks of them wanting to kill jesus before the passover after the passover but not during the passover why well mark 14 2 explains why they didn't want to cause a riot there's five million people out there that seem to like Jesus if they take him during the Passover they might be in trouble And yet uh, Jesus had to be crucified during the Passover on exactly the right day on exactly the right hour If you look at verse 27, it speaks of the hour That he is to be glorified Chapter 13 verse 1 speaks of the hour that he should leave the world Absolutely. Everything was perfectly timed out. Now. Let me just give you a few of the major events and these are so cool these are so cool and i've given them to you oh probably four or five years ago in one fashion or another maybe not all of these but i uh, listen to the details that were being fulfilled the anointing with oil that's mentioned in verses three through seven here and <clears throat> that occurred on the same day That uh, there was a mark that was placed upon lambs that were going to be set apart That didn't have any blemish and they were set apart for their death same day That uh, Jesus was anointed and if you look at verse 7, it says that jesus was anointed for his burial Okay, so he was being marked out those lambs were later taken from the fields of bethlehem They were herded through the streets of jerusalem not at this point to be slaughtered, but they were taken to the temple for later on to be slaughtered. And they were, they were, uh, the, the, priests would, would take them. And this was the same day. This is the triumphal entry when Jesus went to the temple to cleanse the temple and to confront the priests who would later put him to death as well. Uh, Josephus calculated the number of lambs that were herded through the street on that day. As being two hundred and fifty-six thousand five hundred. Now, those two hundred and fifty-six thousand lambs being herded through the streets of Jerusalem toward the temple on Palm Sunday, Jesus was walking right in the midst of those lambs going to that temple. When you start to think of that, it just it makes you, you have shivers go down your spine as you think of the emotion that was in Christ's. Uh, Voice, you know as he talks about his death because he realizes that every aspect of what he was doing was a synchronization of those festival uh, those festival rituals now We're going to skip over some of the events, but there's a significance to the timing when Christ was nailed to the cross the timing of the darkness which occurred from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon those three hours of darkness were actually the time that the priests we were preparing the lambs to begin the slaughter when at uh, 3 o'clock the, 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 the sacrifice would be made in the temple. And why do you think God made three hours of darkness right then? He didn't want those priests being able to see a thing to be able to have any other sacrifice than the sacrifice of the last lamb that was to be slain. He wanted people uh, to have their focus upon Calvary. And so even there, it's just a remarkable uh, thing. It must have been very frustrating for them at the very time that they're supposed to be preparing these lambs to not be able to see a thing because of the thick darkness that's around them. Now, at the moment that the temple lambs would have been slain, if they could have been, Jesus died. He gave up the ghost. At the moment that the priests would have entered into the holy place, the earthquake came and the temple, that's the time when Christ's side was speared and Outflowed water and blood and so all of the people who had been trapped at that temple because of the darkness They couldn't have gone home. It was a thick darkness that was there when the lights came on What's the first thing that they would have been able to see is that now for the first time? The Holy of Holies was open any of the priests that were in there That's probably why so many of the priests became Christians in 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 the book of Acts now I'll skip over some events and just mention the resurrection which occurred on the festival of first fruits. Let me explain. There are three days back to back. There's Passover, then the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the next day is the Feast of Firstfruits. And on the Feast of Firstfruits, and then fifty days later is also Pentecost, but on the Feast of First Fruits, it was the day that the token harvest of grain was offered up to the Lord as a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. And all of the Old Testament Saints who were raised with him at that time but the preparation for that began the evening before Jesus was crucified okay the elders of the city would go out or the elders of Israel would go out and they would go into a field where there was grain that was growing and they would pull together some of the grain and they would bind it with a rope and uh, that was the evening when Jesus was bound with a rope. Ederschein points out that the night that Jesus was bound with a rope, guess where that was? It was, uh, the grain that was bound was bound outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron. Jesus was bound outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron in the garden of Gethsemane, which was right next to the field, which would have been bound with that grain. And it's just remarkable when you see the details, uh, Guess when the grain was cut down. It was only bound that evening But it was cut down on the next evening when Christ was cut down and taken off of the tree uh, off of the cross Edersheim points out that the basket of grain that was carried away from that field that spot Would be very close to the spot that Christ was being carried away and put into the tomb and just as that. That that uh, grain was in that Omer basket for three days and for three nights. Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. And then on the festival of first fruits, they would uncover the basket. They would take out the grain. They would beat it. They would thresh it, and then they would heave it up and they would offer it up before the Lord. Well, that's the day that Jesus's body is glorified and presented. As uh, as perfect before the Lord, and so there's all kinds of little details from the Old Testament that Jesus was fulfilling to the T. That those things I just gave you enough to show you. There was nothing that was an accident. There was no tragedy. Okay, no tragedy. This was something that was planned from the foundation of the world, and nothing in this world was able to stop it. The Pharisees tried. They tried real hard. Mark fourteen two says. After two days, it was the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes Sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death But they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar of the people And yet their hand was forced and the day and the hour that Christ's whole life was being planned for Came exactly according to plan. And let me tell you something We have every reason and right to rejoice When we see that god's perfect plan was being worked out providentially through in through and around and under the sinful actions of men and the hatred of men and if he did it back then we can rejoice in the fact that god continues to work in through and under and around the sinful actions and the hatred of people today he causes even the wrath of men to praise him says the scriptures right And so when we're being persecuted, we can't say, oh, woe is me and begin to lament and wail and complain and grumble against the Lord. Instead, we have every reason to praise the Lord that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. You see, God could not work every detail of history together for our good if he did not control every detail of history. He's a predestinating God. He controls all things. And if he did not, man, we'd be messed up. And so if you have difficulty praising the lord because of some of the frustrations that have come against you one of the things i would encourage you to do is meditate on the fact that he controls all of history he is the ruler he is the king of history so he's the king of the future that's eschatology he is the king of history that's predestination and providence and Just read the book of Esther and it'll it'll show you how even though they are to blame They are motivated by their sins yet. God somehow Mysteriously is able to work all of those things together in a marvelous way to me This is an encouragement for praise and if we're not appraising people there is something wrong the third major reason Why we ought to praise him is because Jesus was actually willing to be our king to rule over us despite our rebellion our ignorance Our idiocy some of the things that the disciples did you shake your head at until you realize "Whoa, I've done worse, (laughs) you know, and yet he's willing to be our king in light of our failures This is just absolutely amazing now What I want to do is I just want to contrast Christ with Moses for a moment when Moses came down from Mount Sinai And he found that Israel had sinned against God Once again, God said I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make of you a great nation. So he was offering to wipe Israel off the face of the map and to raise up a new nation to Moses. And he knows in saying this, he's going to cause Moses to be an intercessor on Israel's behalf and to stand as a type of Jesus, who is the second Moses. And so Moses intercedes on their behalf, and God, God spares them. But here's the thing are they any different than us i don't think so not at all how many days was moses up there i think they'd given up hope Uh, he had said that he was coming back and he was taking so long they'd given up hope but how many times do we bail out of our responsibilities because we get tired of waiting for god i mean we're in the same boat that they were and yet jesus the second moses intercedes on our behalf he is willing to rule over us uh, God wanted to wipe out Israel because of their stubbornness, their grumbling. And so what makes Christ want to be our king when we have the same stubbornness, we have the same uh, grumbling in our lives? They were ignorant. Uh, verse 16 says his, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And so the incredible love of Christ can be seen in the fact He is willing to rule over us. He is the personal king. I mean, think of Moses. Moses didn't want Israel to be wiped out, and so he stood as a good type of the Lord Jesus Christ in that. But he didn't want to lead Israel either. And I want to read a little section for you and contrast that with Christ. At one point, he complained to God, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give me meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't have that attitude? You guys are such a burden for me i don't want to carry this father please take these guys away i can't stand it to me this is reason to praise god that jesus is willing to be our king when you examine your own hearts and you realize the depravity that is in there it's an amazing thing that he wants to be and yet there he is he's willing to receive the title king of israel he's willing to ride on a donkey in verse 14. see the donkey was the that the animal that a king would get coronated on, right? It was a symbol of peace. If he came on a stallion, it would indicate that he was about to wipe them out, declare war against them. If you read in Revelation, Jesus comes on a stallion, and what does he do? He declares war against Israel. He declares war against the nations. But here, even though they deserve war, he comes in peace, and he says, I'm willing to be your king. It's just an incredible thing, and it just blesses my heart. When I, when I deserve his warfare against me, and yet... Uh, He gives forgiveness and salvation and peace. If you're ever depressed, if you need reason for joy, meditate on the fact you're not a burden for the Lord. He's willing to rule over you. He cares for you. He rejoices over you as a, a groom rejoices over the bride. And so we can say, Hosanna, hallelujah, praise be to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A last anchor for our faith, if you've got trouble in praising God, Is That this King's love is a sacrificial love. He loved us so much. He was willing to die for us And so it's a sacrificial love Speaking of Christ's first coming Psalm 118 says blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and if you look at verse 13 You'll see that these people who were singing praises were quoting that psalm They were quoting that psalm, but the psalm goes on to say blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. And so Psalm 118 wants us to be praising and rejoicing the Lord at the very time That this lamb Jesus is being tied to the horns of the altar to be sacrificed why because it shows the incredible mercy and the incredible love that he has toward us it's a sacrificial love another passage which prophesied Palm Sunday and is quoted in verse 15 is Zechariah 9 verse 9 Uh, Zechariah 9 records that Jesus is coming on the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem and then he says as for you also Because of the blood of the covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. And so his atonement, his sacrifice that these pilgrims were unwittingly uh, singing to Jesus, singing about him, uh, are, are one of the highest reasons why we should be a praising people, no matter how bad your lives might appear to be right now. Nothing is, is as bad as if you were sent to the waterless pit, to hell. And we ought to meditate on that. You start grumbling over the, the, the problems that are in your family, the problems that are in our nation, the uh, lack of finances, or whatever it may be. Meditate on how much worse things could be. You could be in the waterless pit, in hell. And yet God, in his mercy, has saved you. Now... If you go through life with little reason to praise what you might want to do Just as a little exercise is to walk your way backwards through those four points First of all ask yourself am I really saved if I if i'm never praising god Spontaneously during times of pain and difficulty and persecution and suffering if i'm not praising god then Am I really a believer? You know uh, wicked people can praise when things are going great But it's believers who praise when things are going bad. And so we need to ask, am I truly a believer? Because once we have been saved and been transferred into the kingdom of light, we have every reason to be praising him because of that transfer out of darkness. And so if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, what I pray is that you would say, Lord, I cannot save myself. I am a sinner. And I know that unless Jesus is my substitute, I am without hope. And so I cast my sins on Jesus because he came to pay the penalty for my sins. And I receive his righteousness by faith. And I pray as I put my faith in Jesus that you would receive me, Father. That's the first step. Now, if you are a believer and you still see no reason to praise God, then it may be that your problem is that you do not have the third point present in your life. You're resisting the rule of God in your life. Let me tell you, that's a sure way to misery. Satan wants us to believe that if we follow our own self-interest, that's when we're going to be happy. But Jesus says the only way to have your cup of joy so full that it's overflowing is as you submit to the kingship of Jesus, as you allow him to reign in your life, you submit. In fact, one of the things I do frequently in my devotions is I kneel on the floor. I put my head on the floor and I say, Lord, put your foot on my neck. I'm your bondservant But I tell you it brings great joy when you know he's received you as your bond as his bondservant But there is no greater joy than serving him or it may be uh, that you lack the trust Of Romans 8 28 that all things work together for your good You might say I can't believe that God controls everything that he predestinates all of history well, then you're never going to have the comfort of Romans eight twenty-eight and being able to see, you know This painful thing that's come into my life. This disease that's come into my life Is something God intends for my good and I want to learn from this thing and I praise you God for giving this thing to me And so one of the things that you may need to do is to say Lord I repent of my desire for independence and I want you to be the predestinating God And I believe that you are the God who controls all things. Let me tell you if the worst sin in history The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was controlled in absolutely every detail and God worked it together for our good. There is no reason that we cannot believe that God works, even the sinful uh, persecution and the evils that people loved ones and others bring against us, that he's working it together for our good. And we can praise him for it. Or it may be that you lack the first point, a positive vision for the future. God's promises for your personal future. Are your personal eschatology okay and God has given a bright future for every one of you he says if God is for us who can be against us he says for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith he promises he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ and so God's promises for your personal future are bright they're glorious they're wonderful even when you're going through the pain that they were going through in John chapter 12. God's promises concerning planet Earth are great and glorious. He says, of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He promises, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so my prayer this morning is that these four anchors for your faith would uh, take root in your life and cause you to be a praising people. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that it would do its work in our lives, that the Holy Spirit would take an industrial-size stapler and staple these things into our hearts so that we could not get rid of them. Father, I pray that you would make us to be a praising people. Father, when we look at Israel and we see over and over again that they were a grumbling, complaining people, and it grieved your heart. Father, I know that you are grieved with us when we constantly complain and and sputter and whine and and cry and father i pray that you would help us to so show forth the grace of the lord jesus christ in our lives that even when we're stepped on we praise even when our rights are taken away we praise the lord is given the lord is taken away blessed be the name of the lord help us father to not Uh, to be like Job early was, and like he was later on in in the book of Job, when you confronted him with your majesty and your sovereignty and your control of past, present, and future. Help us to be, Father, like Job in his best days. Help us to be a praising people. And thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient for this. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.